to wait for the next time somebody calls us out on Tumblr. But anyway, hello everyone, and welcome back to the LGB Terrorcast. In case our negligence of identification in the previous episode confused your sweet baby brain, I'm Grendel, that's Carling, and we're back hot and wet in your ear holes to talk about found family and some such other bullshit in Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Dream Warriors. I could give you an intimate, well-articulated prelude into the content of this film, but I'm not going to, because my thoughts on this movie are really best surmised as, this movie is fucking insane. And of course what we're here to do is analyze, psychoanalyze, and feed our audience special treats in the way of knowledge nuggets so you can just sit back, relax, and listen to us spout bullshit for the next 40-something minutes while you open a new tab and learn how to make sourdough bread. Please, do something constructive with your time that isn't watching our generically animated backdrop. Learn how to make sourdough bread. It's long, but it's worth it. Yeah, we're, we're, our little animation is cute, but we're not so cute that you should be staring at us for, like, you know, 40 minutes. Unless you're a furry, in which case I understand. Yeah, we're still waiting for our fan art, actually. Yeah, what the fuck? I want to... Before I get into my pre-watch thoughts on this episode, one, my lizard is staring at me really weirdly. Finally recording in my house this time, so that should be a little treat. Two, I'm a little under the weather right now. Uh, my husky, gritty voice might break at some point, so just expect that to happen. I might clear my throat. From my recollection, Dream Warriors is more about found family and processing grief and trauma than it is actually about Freddy Krueger chasing people around the set. We open on a girl called Christian. She's one of our protagonists, and this movie cuts ties with the sole survivor trope, trading it for a group dynamic. Christian is forced to slit her own wrist by Freddy Krueger, and when she is transported to Weston Hills Psychiatric Hospital, she is treated extremely poorly by the medical staff, with the exception of Nancy and Dr. Gordon. Nobody else trusts her or believes her more than her mother does. Her mother is a terrible human being. Oh, she's I... she's one of those people that if you're if her daughter was throwing up right in front of her, she'd be like, mm, I still have to go to school. Yeah, if you thought Marge Thompson was bad, this lady is arguably just as bad, if not worse, than she is. I do not like her. They're soulmates for each other, those two. Ugh. This movie revisits the idea of female hysteria, and how young girls' problems are often written off as hormones, dramatics, or just plain lies. Be it suicidal ideation, mental illness, or a man potentially stalking a young woman, young women are just brushed aside in this narrative. Ooh, a little voice crack, nice. Yummy. <clears throat> Personally and professionally, the system put in place to care for people far too often ignores the suffering of children, again doubly so if the children are female. It is easy to dismiss a child's suffering. Our society has made it to be so. This isn't to say that the male protagonists in the movie do not struggle, because they do. Freddy is just as aggressive, and in some cases sexually aggressive, towards the male teenagers as he has historically been to the girls. The thing is that the only people who believe Christian or Nancy about any of this are people who share the same trauma. And as much as there is to be said about gender in this movie, such as why Freddy preying on young women, who he knows will be silenced, suggests he carries some innate understanding of the power he holds over them, which is, you know, solely based on being perceived as a man. Of course, he'd understand this. He's a deity of terror. There is equally, if not more, to be said about how mental illness, trauma disability and neurodivergency binds people together. 
When you are trapped in similarly dire straits, you tend to break or bond, crash or burn with no real gray areas in between, and it is only the strength of these bonds, of the trust and the love between these characters, that ensures that some of them will, at the end, survive. Which is very interesting. You don't see community and unity in a Nightmare on Elm Street movie a lot. This was the first movie that truly did that. Besides having, you know, Jesse and Nancy have friends or love interests, this is an entire group. This is a whole little, you know, subsection of teenagers in Springwood. Dr. Gordon, for one, my little pre-rewatch thoughts, I still remember this, fucking rules. It would be- a I ch- loved him. He's a good boy. It would be kind of a crime for me to claim he wasn't one of the most memorable characters in this movie, as short as his screen time was- There's something to be said for the subversion of stereotypes surrounding older men in slasher movies with Dr. Gordon's character. It's refreshing. Doc's presence as a father figure to Nancy and the Dream Warriors breathes a lot of life into this narrative, as brief as his company may be. And Nancy returning to orchestrate the formation of the Dream Warriors is equally significant to me because she was Freddy's original victim, his patient zero. And for her to have used the hurt he caused her as a means by which to help others in the same situation, and to make sure that they were seen and heard and listened to in a way that she was not, is demonstrative of the fact that Freddy did not ruin her because Freddy could not ruin her. Dream Warriors really is not a movie about a slasher. Dream Warriors is a movie about mentorship and familial love. I personally think this movie has something to say about how the medical system treats and misdiagnoses trauma survivors. Our cast of young characters has been through a lot. Um, Not only are they tormented by Freddy, they're also struggling with their own personal demons. As mentioned before, Kristen's mother just doesn't give her the time of day. She just lets her deal with everything by herself. Um, Pre-watch, I had said that Kincaid had anger management issues, but upon re-watching it, I don't believe that he did. I think that's how he was perceived, and I'm going to get into that later. Uh, Taryn deals with a heroin addiction. And with someone that something that these kids are dealing with is the fact that the head, I, I want to say she's a nurse, but I don't think it's the right word. The head lady, the head bitch in charge of this whole operation, Elizabeth Sims, she's insisting that they're suffering from mass delusion and she refuses to entertain the thought that they're telling the truth about a dream killer. She's very cold towards them. She doesn't really show them a lot of compassion, despite the fact she says that she cares She's pretty callous. Uh, At one point, towards the end, she forcefully sedates Kristen. She's constantly sending Kincaid to something called the Quiet Room, which I have a lot of heated thoughts about. We are going to talk a lot about Kincaid. We both really like him. And as I was, uh, we were talking about Marge Thompson before, so coming back to her, I feel like Elizabeth Sims represents the emotionally unavailable and untrustworthy authority figure who takes an already dangerous situation and makes it even worse under the guise that they're being helpful. She sincerely does believe that she's aiding these kids, and I think that is something that, I mean, originally I thought that was something that separated her from Marge. Upon rewatching, I'm having some doubts. I will say that Marge Thompson was, I strongly believe that her manipulation of Nancy was deliberate. I think she was doing it for her own selfish reasons. I know that there are people who like to make the argument that she was trying to protect Nancy from Freddy, but I think that she was trying to cover her ass. And I really believe that she knew that she had a lot of power over Nancy and that she was abusing it. I really, I really don't like Marge. 
Um, just personal experiences have made me dislike her a lot. She's not and, in this movie, though, so we need to move on from Marge. Yeah, yeah. Just a lot of parallels. Uh, back to Dr. Sims, who is in this movie, she believes that she's protecting her patients, and while there may be a kernel of truth to this, she's still not a very nice person. There are still things that she says and does to the kids that are just really questionable. But I do give her some credit for having more sympathetic motivations than some of the other human antagonists. Like the coach from Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Uh, not going to get into him right now, but he, he was a creep. That's the one thing I can say about Sims is that she was not. Hold on, I lost my place because my computer is funny like that. We Good are moment. using a cheat sheet because, again, if we didn't use a cheat sheet, can you imagine how fucking awful this would be? You heard our first episode. We hardly had a cheat sheet for that. You don't want that again. You really don't want no. that again. No. I'm using a trackpad, so please bear with me. Uh, another thing that sticks out to me, as we were already talking about, was the way Kincaid's character was handled. Grendel has some very articulate thoughts about that, and I'm very excited for you guys to hear them, but pre-watch, I was recalling just how his character was treated. He's a very beloved character by fans. He's one of my personal favorites. But there is something to be said about how this young black man is treated like he's dangerous every time he expresses a strong emotion. Kincaid usually expresses a strong emotion when he feels like he is in danger or like he's not being listened to. So when you think about it, he was never really doing anything wrong in the first place. He's just, he's not allowed to get angry or else they will lock him up in that quiet room. Possibly permanently, Sims warned him if he didn't start keeping his thoughts to himself. So, intentionally or not, I do feel like this film offers commentary on the mistreatment of black people in medical settings, if not any white-dominated setting, especially when we examine the contrast between how Sims treats her white patients and how she treats Kincaid. And I will say, neither of us are black. Uh, Carling's white. I'm a little mixed. And, um, well, more than a little, but I'm a little mixed. I'm a little mixed boy. And... <laughs> Carling has a lot of articulate thoughts about this too, as do I, but if we get anything wrong, please talk to us. We're going to have, you know, black guests on this podcast who can talk about things with personal anecdotes in greater detail in the future. We just are speaking from observation and not experience, so keep that in mind. Yeah, thank you. Definitely. And I would also like to talk about Max, uh, one of our other black characters in this film. He is one of the orderlies at Weston Hills and another character from the series I like a lot. Lawrence, the kids are... <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne. Yes, he actually went by Larry Fishburne when he did this movie, which oh, I find boy. kind of funny. The kids really liked him. Uh, he was one of the only adults they really trusted besides Neil and Nancy. And for good reason. He's very sweet. He's kind and he's gentle to them. He acts like kind of a big brother figure. You know, he has a job to do. He still has to give them warnings sometimes. But he seems to, you know, he treats them with humanity and a lot of it. And you can't say that about a lot of the other kind of authority figures in this film. One of my pre-watch notes was how Sims had ordered him to guard the sedated Kristen in the climax of the film. And how I, I remembered how he kind of seemed to have this hint of regret about him. And I had thought that Max understood that there was something bigger going on, but he was too afraid of potentially endangering the kids and losing his job to really investigate, which is un completely understandable. I do sympathize with that. I believed that Max's uncertainty played a role in why he had allowed, why he had allowed Nancy to visit the kids one more time. Not only did I rem recall him acknowledging how much he she cares for them, I feel like Max understood that she may have been able to aid him in ways that he couldn't. 
Another reason why I appreciate Max's presence in the film, beyond giving the kids another sympathetic mentor figure, is that he subverted negative stereotypes involving black men. He was never once presented as anything other than compassionate and protective. However, that's a very, very low bar, and it just goes to show uh, how far cinema and media has come since then and how much we need to continue improving, I think. I'm going to go back to Kristen now. She is introduced as our new Nancy, a teenage girl who is simultaneously being targeted by Freddy and emotionally neglected by her single mother. I wanted to talk about how when Nancy is presented with this girl who reminds her of herself, she immediately sees herself in Kristen, I think, and because Nancy was never shown understanding and compassion when she was in the situation, she makes sure to show Kristen that kind of compassion. We see Nancy come full circle. She goes from being a resourceful survivor to a maternal guide. She doesn't repeat the cycle of abuse, she actually breaks it. As near and dear as Freddy is to my heart, I have to say, this is the movie, if no other movie before it had gotten me there, that made me want to beat this motherfucker's ass. This movie is our first indication of Freddy Krueger, not as some just hypersexual, kind of goofy, over-the-top certified crazy person. No. Freddy in Dream Warriors is malicious. He's calculating, and scariest of all, he's fucking smart. He's learned his abilities, he's harnessed them, he's mastered them, and he is actively using them to hurt and silence the protagonists, to an extent of which his cruelty has never actually reached before in prior movies. And don't get me wrong, Freddy Krueger's an asshole. It is an undisputed fact, he's been an asshole ever since his first moment on the big screen, but this movie... This movie gets you invested in so many different protagonists with so many different backgrounds that when he attacks these characters, it no longer feels like a slasher pursuing a final girl or boy. It feels very, very personal. Every taunt, every threat, every injury and death comes at a very real emotional weight that had only been achieved prior during deaths like Grady's and Glenn's and even then hardly to this extent. These hurt. They hurt every time, not just once or twice. They're gross. Freddy is gross. Freddy feels meaner than usual in this movie, and in my opinion, that's just a testament to how well-written and likable the central cast of Dream Warriors really is. They feel like people, and by extension, Freddy as a villain feels more like a person in the worst possible way. It is very hard for us to humanize the monster, because it forces us to see the monster's true monstrosity reflected in human behaviors, like envy and lust and vengeance. It reminds us that anyone left unchecked could become a Freddy Krueger. And when I rewatched this film yesterday, I noticed that Freddy's latest brand of viciousness is introduced as quickly as Kristen is established as a compassionate person. He wasn't trying to kill her when he first met her. He was trying to frame her as suicidal. That was a calculated move. He knew damn well if he slit her wrists that she would be institutionalized, which would make her easy prey. Like Grendel said, he is one calculating motherfucker, and that makes him not only more dangerous, it makes him more compelling. Something really interesting about this film is how much of it is told through the eyes of these kids. Even if you aren't personally afraid of Freddy Krueger, you're sure as hell going to be scared of what he's going to do to them. The greatest horror films, I think, are the ones where you're invested in the safety of the protagonists. And Dream Warriors is one of my favorite examples of this. 
This is more of a, you know, I would love to hear your opinions on this. Uh, it's more of an offhand question than anything else, but you got to wonder if Freddy can hear people in the real world. There's this one scene that caught my attention where Nancy is looking after Joey while he's sleeping and she challenges Freddy to like come out. And he actually carves a response into Joey's torso, despite the fact Nancy's definitely not sleeping. So it really makes you wonder if maybe Freddy took a residence in Joey's comatose brain. And I wish the movie had more time to explore that. I thought that was fascinating well, and very, very creepy. To me, uh, I've consumed a lot of Nightmare on Elm Street media because I have a big hard-on for Freddy Krueger mostly. But um, I view him as sort of a parasite more than an, like a being. He's not really just a dream demon so much as he is something that attaches himself to some part of your brain. He sits there and he worms his way into whatever cortex he's decided to nestle in. And I think that he sees through your eyes. I think that he smells through your nose and tastes through your mouth. And that is how he's able to possess people. He probably did at least partially possess Joey. And that's probably why he could hear Nancy. And we've seen him do it before, not just in dreams, but Jesse's skin unfolded in Nightmare 2 and birthed Freddy Krueger, so there is some level of power that he does hold in the real world that gives him that kind of, that kind of autonomy. I do think that that kind of helps tie Nightmare 2 and Nightmare 3 together because there are a lot of people who said Nightmare 2 didn't fit in with the rest of the franchise, and I really have to disagree with that for a number of reasons, but... Back to Freddy's character, I noticed that Dream Warriors is the first film that establishes him as being a dirty cheat. I mean, he does pick easy targets right from the get-go. That isn't a totally new faucet of his character. But you have to remember this is the scene where Nancy specifically says that they all need to stay together in the dream world to survive. He hears that, so he decides to separate them because he understands that if they're not together, if he goes after them one by one... He has a better chance of winning. He doesn't play fair. He's a shithead, even for slasher standards. He hunts like and a I weasel. And I love that about him. He hunts like a fucking weasel. That's something that Freddy vs. Jason revisits in a very interesting way, but again, not talking about that today. We actually learn in passing that Freddy is an Aerosmith fan and that he loves bourbon. When you talk about Freddy being humanized, I think that has a lot to do with it. Just little things that he says and little things that he does kind of reminds you that he was a person once. And rather than making him less scary, that makes him scarier because it reminds you, oh, he wasn't always like this. He was a human once and he might retain some human interests and there's something very uncanny about that, I think. Another thing I wanted to mention, and I know we both have very strong feelings about this, the way Robert England just moves, like the way he maneuvers his body, that it is iconic. He just puts himself into that role. He transforms, like the way that he kind of draws his voice and like the way that he moves his face. He gives everything to his performance as Freddy, and he's always given everything to his performance as Freddy. But you can really just see it in this film. Like, do you, you might remember that one shot where they're entering the boiler room and it's all red and he, he saunters out holding the teddy bear and he kind of tosses it aside and he smirks at him. Look at how cool I am. I hate young people. I'm going to throw a teddy bear because that's <laughs> symbolism. And speaking of developing him, another trait that we're introduced to Freddy's is his pride. 
he flat out tells the dream warriors that he stores the souls of his victims inside of him because he doesn't think there's anything they can do about it. And it doesn't cross his mind that maybe he shouldn't be exposing this information to them because he doesn't think that they could use it against him because he sees himself as God. He doesn't think they can do anything. And to be fair to him, not that I really want to be, they, they can't do anything in this film and they don't because there's nothing they can do. But it does come back to bite him in the ass in the next movie, and I do find that pretty satisfying. But I think one of the most interesting things about Freddy in this film is something that's very subtle and something I haven't seen a lot of people talk about. And that's when Freddy takes on Dawn's form at the very end of the movie, and he says to Nancy, through Dawn, like, he shows this acknowledgement that Dawn wasn't a good parent to her, and Freddy says straight up that Dawn, he feels that Dawn owed Nancy an apology. I understand the point of this scene was that Freddy was pretending to be Dawn and he had to be convincing, but it's still something interesting to think about that Freddy has that kind of insight, especially when we learn in the in Nightmare 6 that Freddy is a dad himself. Yeah, he, um, I, again, he did this because it was what she wanted to hear and it was what would lure her to him, but at the same time, you don't just pull that out of your ass and have it work. If he had pulled it out of his ass, it wouldn't have worked. There was something distinctly uh, truthful behind his words. He did have an observation there that m in some way mattered to him enough for him to retain that knowledge and then to express it to her in whatever twisted manner that he feels he could. Now we're going to talk about Nancy after a slew of technical difficulties that made me want to fucking blow my brains out. Anyway... Words can't fucking describe. If you've noticed the noise in the background that's probably still going to be here after I edit the audio, it's gone away. But words cannot fucking describe how happy I was to see that Nancy as a character wasn't just written away from the franchise forever after Nightmare on Elm Street 1. I think this was the perfect way to bring her back, not as some scared fellow teenager, but as a mentor figure to a group of kids just as pants-shittingly terrified as she once was for the same reason. She's grown as a character. She has not been reduced to somebody unrecognizable. We owe that both to Heather's continuously excellent performance as Nancy and to what is, quite frankly, some of the best writing in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise that I think there is. Even when the plot and narrative goes totally Wes Craven unapproved off the fucking rails and the sanctity of the franchise itself is called into question or whatever it is that lore snobs like to whine about, Nancy Thompson remains, and Nancy Thompson always slaps major fucking ass in these movies. She's the best. I can't think of a better way she could have fit into Dream Warriors than what they ultimately did with her character, and I was very, very glad to see her back and not just discarded. The signs of her trauma and her grief remain evident. She still has that gray streak from stress in her hair, and she has made no effort to beautify or conceal the proof of her past, which is a very small thing, but it is symbolic. Nancy is back both to manage her own pain and to help others learn to manage theirs. Freddy Krueger again never ruined Nancy Thompson, and I'm going to spoil something here, but even when she dies at his hand, Freddy Krueger did not win. He never managed to steal her youth. He never managed to steal her innocence, her happiness, or her ability to love. He hurt her, but he didn't destroy her. He hardened her, but he never broke her. He could kill her body, but he could never break her spirit, because Nancy died loving. Nancy died as Nancy. She didn't die as some mind-flayed piece of meat like so many slasher girls do. She maintained her integrity as a human being up until the end of her life. And in that way, to me, Nancy Thompson will have always been the victor. 
Freddy Krueger was not allowed to win over Nancy. But I will say about that before I get into my own thoughts on Nancy was that I do appreciate that her death wasn't, it wasn't exploitative. It could have been and it wasn't. And she was allowed to die with integrity. And as sad as I was that we lost her, that did make it a little bit easier to swallow. I really liked that her tendency to investigate and put the pieces of a mystery together is still carried over from the first film. It's like you already mentioned, like, she still feels like our Nancy, but she's wiser, she's more world-weary, and she is patient. We got into that a little bit in episode one already, so I'm not going to repeat myself, but I appreciate that she doesn't let her trauma harden her or make her mean. One line that stuck out to me was when she said to Neil that he was doing the best that he could for those kids. And it really made me wonder if that was something that she had to tell herself to cope with the deaths of her own loved ones. And it says a lot about her that she's taking her pain or she's reflecting on her pain. And she's kind of using that to make sure other people don't suffer the same way that she did. I I think that speaks volumes about who she is. When she's talking to the kids about who Freddy is and why he's after them, She specifically blames the parents who burned him for what's happening. She doesn't even blame Freddy himself. She could have easily said, oh, Freddy's evil and this is why he's doing this. But no, she says, our parents burned him and that is why he's after us. And I feel like that says a lot about how she feels about her own parents. Unfortunately, older men are still trying to silence her to this day, even though she's considered an expert in her field. People still won't listen to her. The head of Weston Hills interrupts her when she tries to explain to him why Joey's in that coma. And that's a very frustrating moment and an unfortunate one. But it is an important callback to the first film and a reminder that even though Nancy is a hero in our eyes and in Neil's eyes and in the eyes of the children, people still don't respect her. She's still, and I really hate to put it like this, she's still treated like a young woman and it sucks but it does it is kind of a dose of reality that i think needed to be in there just to really drive home the point of her character i think it's really significant that she's the last of her strength to restrain freddie and save kristen's life she i think nancy knew she wasn't going to be able to kill him by herself because she wasn't neil helped her neil is the one who sprayed the corpse with the holy water in the real world but she did whatever she could to distract him and make sure he didn't kill that girl. And that scene where Kristen's holding her and she's promising to dream her into a beautiful dream, I cried when I watched that again. I didn't think it was going to get to me that much, but I bawled. And I've seen this movie before. So the fact that I can go back to this movie and still cry when she dies, that's that's another thing that says a lot, I think, about just how much we care about her and like how well made this movie is. A slasher movie is nothing if not a vessel for the final girl, and Kristen is a very palatable final girl. She follows in the footsteps of the greats, Jesse and Nancy, without erasing her predecessor's influence, which is a very, very important point. So many movies want to revamp the protagonist and make us care more about them, this is a problem I have with Alice, than we do about any of the characters we've cared about before. And the goal of your protagonist should not be to make them better, it should be to make them equal but unique in their own way. Christian accomplishes this. This movie allowed Christian and Nancy 
to have a very, very sweet familial bond, and I hesitate to call Nancy a mother figure, but she absolutely is a protective big sister type to the Dream Warriors. They did not nullify Nancy's influence to allow Christian to exist as a character, they combined their impact. And this refusal to choose one over the other is what ultimately leads the audience to being able to love Christian and Nancy as separate but related entities. These are two female soul survivors that are not interchangeable with one another, nor with any other final girl in any other franchise. They are distinct and well-written, and Christian is able to reflect the struggle Nancy faced in a way that feels realistic and meaningful, as opposed to narratively forced. We are never told how to feel, and we are never told how Nancy feels about Christian. The love between them on the screen is what illustrates for us everything that we need to know about their relationship and about Christian as a character. Like Nancy, Christian was allowed to be both brave and terrified. She was never too cool to admit that she needed help, and she was never so pathetic that her only purpose was either to serve as eye candy or to get skewered in five seconds, roll credits, end of film, which are two very persistent issues with the treatment of female characters in horror films, specifically within the slasher subgenre. Christian is like Nancy, not because she is indistinguishable from Nancy, but because she gives us that same feeling of humanity, humility, and familiarity. She's not grossly over-sexualized, she is not played for a laugh or a cheap gross-out, she's just a teenage girl, like Nancy was, and she only has a few friends in the world who can understand her and what she's going through. She's desperate for a mentor, she needs someone to hear her, these things do not make her weak, they make her a good, well-rounded character worthy of being celebrated. And if you couldn't tell, I like Christian plenty. I think she's a fantastic, you know, follow-up to Nancy Thompson. Kristen is very lovable, and it kind of saddens me that she doesn't get more recognition in the Nightmare on Elm Street fandom or the slasher community. Something else I feel ties her to Nancy she is presented to us as a child. They don't they never sexualize her, not once. And we sympathize with her, uh, because I think because she's a child, that helps in our sympathy with her, along with the terrible things she has to deal with in her home life, and because she is a very compassionate and brave person. Right from the get-go, one of her establishing moments was when she sees that little girl in danger in the dream world, she immediately tries to help her, doesn't even think about it. She grabs that kid and she tries to run away with her. That is how you make us root for a protagonist. You don't tell us Kristen is nice. You show us that she's nice, and they did. Additionally, they introduce her as an artist. The fact she's shown to have hobbies helps humanize her and gives her depth. Again, like Nancy, she isn't here to die. We're supposed to identify with her. And I'm glad that she was finally allowed to stand up to shitty authority figures because the entire movie she's just been getting grief from them. Another small thing, but it, it really just makes a huge difference in this film, they let her cry realistically. There was none of that pretty crying. She was allowed to cry like a human being. She was allowed to be a little bit ugly when she cried. And I think her reaction is what made Nancy's death so sad. Just hearing her reaction and seeing her reaction, it was really, it was devastating. I have a, a, an extreme attachment to the female characters in this franchise in general, uh, specifically in movies one and three, and to an extent six and New Nightmare. I, I really like 
this franchise's dedication to keeping its female characters developed and well-rounded, there is a character that I think they've done a little dirty with how little they actually expanded on her outside of this movie. This movie, I think, did her the most justice that anyone did, and that is Amanda Kruger. Dream Warriors was our first real insight into Amanda Kruger, who is Freddy's mother, as a character. And she fucking kicks ass. Like, I don't care what anybody says, this woman's tough, she's allowed to be persistent, she is allowed to be emotionally strong, but she is also allowed to suffer. She rejects this traditional role of motherhood, particularly in the Catholic Church. The idea of mother as a matronly, all-accepting paragon of servitude to her children and the sire of her children... The irony of her being referred to as Sister Mary in relation to this is not lost on me. She gave birth to a fatherless son, who in this case was not Christ, but a representation of the Antichrist. The circumstances surrounding Freddy's conception were introduced in Dream Warriors, and I find it significant that this movie did not portray Amanda as the bad guy for coping with the situation the way that she did. Now, I can't agree with the idea that children conceived through rape are innately evil, that is not what I'm saying, but what I am saying is, it's very, very likely that Amanda Kruger was both forced to carry Freddy to term, and then was forced to surrender him in order to cover up what happened to her, you know, to make the church look good. Given the card that she was dealt there, I am apt to appreciate that she is still shown to be a good woman and a good human, whilst not necessarily having to be a good mother or a mother at all. Her womanhood and her humanity is never reduced to her being a mother. In fact, she subverts this. She was both robbed of and given a surprising amount of bodily and reproductive autonomy in this movie. She was Freddy's mother, but before she was Freddy's mother, she was her own woman. She directly addresses the extreme trauma of Freddy's conception, and again, while I wish the narrative didn't push the idea that it's somehow the child's fault or the child's burden to bear, it almost fascinates me that they allowed Amanda to reject the idea that she had to live forever with what was forced under her. Through her rejection of her son and her condemnation of her son's behavior, in a way, that is how she moves through her trauma and her grief. All in all, Amanda Kruger is fantastic, and I really wish, more than fucking anything, that the franchise as a whole had given her character more development, because she deserved a lot more screen time than she got. She was fascinating, and you can really see, if you look closely, you can see Freddy in her, like, her cryptic comments, and you kind of get the impression she has this wry sense of humor. You get, yeah, he definitely got that from her. And I think it says a lot about Amanda that Neil mentions that he sees her at Weston Hills to this day, despite the fact she had horrible things happen to her there, her spirit still goes back to act as a nurse and to look after the patients there. She's quite literally a guardian angel. And, you know, the first thing she says about Freddy is that he's an abomination to God. And yes, that's a pretty harsh thing to say about your son, but look at everything Freddy's done in the series so far. Look at everything that he's done in this film specifically and how much Amanda has probably witnessed. Like, I, I really can't blame her. You know, like, she's, she's right, just to be clear. Yeah. And it's like, that's that kind of ties into what Grendel said about how she's... She, she's not forced into the role of mother, despite the fact she's Freddy's mother. She's allowed to say these things about him, and the movie never puts her down for that. In fact, we're supposed to agree with her, and I do agree with her. What adds nuance to that relationship, I think, is she does acknowledge the fact that he was murdered. 
And the way that she words that is really interesting to me because it almost sounds like she's pitying him. I don't think, I don't think she approved of the way that he died, especially if we're going off the theory that he was framed, which Grendel and I prefer to. I know not everyone subscribes to that, but that seems to be a theme in this movie. Nancy says that Freddie was murdered. And Amanda says that Freddie was murdered. And neither of them seem to approve of that. There are even little hints in Freddie's nightmares, things that he does, skits that he does, where he takes, he makes commentary on justice at one point, And while he's talking about the justice system, he ties a noose around his own neck and like pretends to hang himself. And that's very weird to me, which again, we're not talking about Freddie's nightmares, but there are implications there that there is some... There is some kernel of interpretive truth behind him being framed if you want to believe that he was framed. You know, I don't I don't know that Amanda Kruger necessarily would know that about her son, but I know that it's really hard not to pity your own child and not to love your own child, regardless of what they may or may not be guilty of. I think that uh, unless you had anything to add about Amanda, I think that that pretty much summarizes how I feel about her in this movie. We could talk about her uh, in uh, our episode about four and five because she does return, but then I agree that the meat of her character development really happened in three. She um she comes back in five, doesn't she? Or in- she does come back in five, and she plays a major role in that film. I don't know if I like how I could get into how I do feel like she's reduced more to mother in five, and how that bothers me. Oh, I she don't totally know who- is. Yeah, no, yeah. She, she quite literally is forced to reabsorb her son into her womb. It's fucked up. But <laughs> I also don't like that they made her a young, pretty woman in Five. I don't know what the fucking point of that was. Uh, I like that she's allowed to be older and, and kind of wise and weird. Anyway, uh, they took away all the whimsicality and, and personality of her character there in, in favor of, you know, Alice and Freddy's dynamic, which sucks to me. Dr. Gordon! We're gonna talk about Dr. Gordon. I admit there is a very soft, mushy part of my heart that is dedicated to Dr. Neil Gordon. He is, for one, an unanticipated twist on both the father figure and male mentor archetypes. And on authoritative older men in horror just in general, he isn't an asshole on purpose. He doesn't intentionally talk over other people's experiences. And he tries to give people who have inherently less power than he does the time of day to speak their piece. Dr. Gordon listens, and in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, an older man who actually lends his ear to the concerns of the younger characters, especially the ladies, and who believes them and wants to help them, that's pretty special. He slips up, and he has his doubts, but he's never depicted as malicious about it, nor is he in any way rewarded for the mistakes that he does make. Dream Warriors kind of captured my heart because of the quality of its characters. It's hard to have that many different, conflicting, and complementary personalities sharing a screen and still make them all worth watching, but this movie's characters do it for me. And again, as brief as his screen time was, Dr. Gordon is not an exception to this. Immediately we get the impression that he's just this very warm, caring guy, even if he doesn't understand what's going on at first. He's skeptical of Nancy in the beginning, but once he actually witnesses the way that she talks to Kristen and calms her down, it totally changes his perspective and he immediately starts treating Nancy with respect. And like you said, with poor Nancy in particular, it is so hard to find scenes where a man actually respects her, and he does. He, they could have had this ridiculous plot, you know, over how he envies her and the way that she connects with the kids, 
But he, because he actually cares about these children, he's very supportive. He doesn't work against Nancy at any point. He tries to work with her. And that's another reason, and we could make a whole episode about this. I'm very glad that they they rewrote the script for three. It was a much darker film initially, and Neil was written to be a much slimier dude. He was going to be creepy towards Nancy at first, and I'm so glad that they didn't make us sit through that. The fact that he tries to look after the kids and is shown to be deeply upset when he loses one of them, that's another thing that makes me care about him. The fact that he he tries so hard to protect them, and he isn't always right, but he's always willing to learn. And that's another thing that makes him stand out as a male character in the series. He doesn't have an ego. And he is a good character in his own right beyond that. He does have his own arc in the film. He, you know, he they could have reduced him to Nancy's love interest, but they never go there with them. They're just friends. They respect each other. And he plays a pivotal role in saving the day at the end. They work together to stop Freddy. They're both heroes at the end of the day. I'm glad that he survived, you know, it almost made up for the fact she died. Almost. I would have liked it if they both lived at the end, but I'm glad that he got out of there at the end of the day. And I have to say, as someone who was just fucking sick to death of Don Thompson by this movie, the scene where um, where Neil loses his temper with him and he pushes him up against the wall and just calls him out on how shitty he is towards Nancy... Oh my god, that was so satisfying. Speaking of anti-authority and anarchy, I want to talk about Taryn, because we're talking Mm. about Taryn next. Taryn is a character that this movie did dirty in a really good way. And what I mean by that is that I hate that she died, and I hate how she went, because that's no way to go out. But her death illustrated the reality of Freddy's villainy to the audience, so it was, in a way, necessary. It revealed just how real of a nightmare this has become. Freddy no longer has to prey on people with cheap gore and scare tactics or psychosexual mockery. Freddy was hitting people where it hurt. Like I said before, this movie made it personal. And Taryn's death in that alleyway was the moment where I sucked air between my teeth. I was like, oh shit, this got nasty. This got nasty real fucking fast. As a living character, though, I adore Taryn, and I wish they'd done more with her in equal parts. I appreciate her for what she is, but I also wish that she could have been more. Mostly, I like Taryn as a representation of alternative female self-confidence. Taryn fully viewed her dream self as beautiful, and she was right. She didn't have to look or act like everybody else. She did not have to subscribe to the popular standard of beauty. In Taryn's dreams, she was allowed to be big and bold and strong, and she faced off against Freddy with the same intensity as his own daughter later does in Nightmare 6, circling around him like a shark, like he was the prey. If he hadn't pulled such a dirty, low-brow trick on her, I genuinely do not believe she would have lost to him, but frankly, most people who have lost to Freddy wouldn't have if he had been forced to fight fair. She, you know, she read a lot like someone who liked girls to me. I It oh, was God, the way that she dressed, oh, God, I think. Yeah. Look at her fucking mohawk. Oh, yeah. She's not straight. However you want to interpret her character, this woman is not straight. And she isn't your stereotypical tough chick either. She's very sweet with Will and Joey. Uh, one of her establishing character moments in one, is when we see her playing, I think it was Dungeons and Dragons with them. She doesn't really understand it, but she never puts them down for it. 
she sits there with them and keeps them company while they're playing. And it's little moments like that. It's the smallest things in this movie. This is what humanizes them. This is what makes us care about them. It's the fact that they care about each other. And one of the scenes with Taryn that really just made me feel awful for her and really creeped me out, this orderly corners her after she takes a shower and he's trying to offer her drugs. And that really made my skin crawl because the implications of that was just, were just so creepy. And, you know, that said, I am glad that they put that scene in the movie because it shows, you know, a very harsh reality. And that's that women who are in these psychi psychiatric wards, they do have to deal with things like that. They do have to deal with being preyed on. It isn't just women who deal with it, but it is usually women. Historically, women are a predominant number of... I'd have to pull up a statistic on this somewhere, but a predominant amount of sexual abuse that goes on in psychiatric wards goes on against women, and ironically enough, it goes on against black people. Mm -hmm. uh, if anybody who they believe would not be listened to, anybody who is not a white man, is inherently a lot more vulnerable to being preyed on by authority figures in medical situations, uh, in medical institutions, than, you know, somebody who does hold the social privilege to be listened to if something happens to them. That's kind of what makes Joey significant. And we're about to talk about Joey, but Carling will finish her thought. But before we talk about Joey, I do want to say the thing that makes Joey significant is that even though he's assumedly a white man, he can't talk. And that's why he's chosen to, you know, be preyed on. Which actually ties perfectly into something I wanted to mention offhand while we're still on this subject. I was going to make a comment about how it really bothers me that characters like this creepy orderly and like Elizabeth Sims, they're allowed to basically get away with everything that they do. At the end, Freddy never goes after them, and that's another thing that makes you want to just bash Freddy's head into a wall. There are so many people he could go after in this movie who actually deserve it, like Kristen's mother, and he just chooses not to. He consistently- every character he targets in this movie are characters that we like. And it is so despicable. Back to Taryn, though, before I go on this rant about how Freddy's an asshole, because we know he's an asshole. That is the point of his character. Another thing that I think made kind of subverted the whole tough girl uh, stereotype, she's very protective. She's I would say she's one of the most protective characters in this movie. It was actually her who made that phone call to Dr. Gordon when Kristen was in trouble, and she was vis visibly very upset and very scared. And I think you said it best uh, about her death. It's sad. It's unpleasant. But I wouldn't like Nancy's death. I wouldn't say it's unnecessary or exploitative. There needed to be stakes involved in order for us to worry about these kids. And if they all came out of it okay, it would erase the tension in the film, and it would also undermine Freddy as a threat. I think it's important too that one of the characters who died was a character we actually cared about. Because we have Philip and Jennifer, but they were just kind of cannon fodder, in a way. Taryn was not. Taryn was somebody that we were meant to develop a bond with, so to take her from us was very significant. Joey. Sweet Joey. Sweet baby Joey. Baby boy Joey. I have a couple choice words about Joey, mostly in that he was one of the other kills in this movie that really made me- well, not kills, but he was one of the victims in this movie- that made me understand the perspective people are coming from when they say that they hate Freddy. Whether you think of Freddy as a child molester or not, what he did to Joey was fucking disgusting. He used the fact that this child could not speak up for himself. 
that the kid did not have a voice sexually imposed himself on him with the spoken acknowledgement that Joey wouldn't be able to tell anyone it happened, and then took him hostage knowing that the kid would never be able to scream for help. He was an opportunistic predator, and Joey deserved a lot better than that. I will say as a side note that I don't know how big a fan I am of the fact that this movie empowers its disabled and mute characters by taking away their disabilities, but I do know that it was a different time, and at that time giving Joey a voice and giving Will his legs was seen more as a humanization of the disabled than it was a disrespect to the permanence of disabled people's conditions. I don't believe there was intended malice, and all the same I find the fact that Joey cannot speak to be particularly important to the symbolism behind his character, how his character bonds with the others and how Freddy interacts with him. That context is everything. I am somewhat glad that they let Joey find his, you know, bark, because as much as I can wish that they did it metaphorically, giving him his voice back in any way and having him be the one that banishes Freddy in the end that that holds a lot of water. I think so, too. And the fact that Freddy preyed on him, it just makes me so sick. It's it's like it's like with Jesse. It's like, why, why are you doing this to these boys? Why are you doing this to anybody? Fucking leave them alone. However, I do appreciate that the film didn't infantilize Joey for having a disability. He was allowed to have crushes, and he was allowed to be a hormonal teenage boy. I really don't like how the fourth film just you know, flanderized him, and he it just stripped away every nuance that he had. They turned him into a horny teenager when he was just supposed to be a kid with a crush. Like, there was nothing insidious about that. They cleared, the writers of four clearly didn't understand him. And, I really didn't uh, even remember that Joey was in four. That's how much I hate four. I, I have repressed every single character in four, except for the ones that I most explicitly hate. But yeah, four basically took all of the things that people loved about Dream Warriors and fucking spat on it. Anyway, fuck that. Kincaid, <sighs> Kincaid and Joey were allowed to share some tenderness, which is very nice. Um, they were. It was very sweet. I wish they did a little bit more with that. Yeah. I, I want to talk about Kincaid. Can I talk about Kincaid? It's time to talk the about The best Kincaid. boy. Yes. Best boy. I would give my left fucking testicle if it meant that Kincaid was not disrespected at the beginning of Nightmare 4 the way he fucking was. He is one of my favorite characters in this fucking godforsaken series, and he shoulders the weight of being the franchise's first significant black protagonist, which... There are some very stereotypical elements to how Kincaid is portrayed, and I am going to be very openly critical of this perpetuation of the token black teenager as a quote-unquote rough kid who spends his time in the streets. You know, at the same time, for what he is, I love Kincaid, and I'm not about to pretend that his backstory is an invalid personal narrative for a black teenager, because it isn't. There are people who grow up like that. I was born in Cleveland. I've seen it. We live in a society that forces a lot of black kids to grow up like that, a society that benefits from anti-blackness and black impoverishment and black, you know, aggression, perceived aggression the ability to demonize them and to somehow justify it with a false statistic. I will, however, acknowledge that even though this happens, this particular stereotype is consistent in Hollywood, and whether it has any degree of truth to it or not, it is still a stereotype, and stereotypes encourage profiling, and profiling is still bad. Kincaid himself is not what I feared he'd be when he first showed up in that movie, though. We are introduced to him as a stereotypically angry, aloof black man, but it doesn't take long for the narrative to establish that you really should not judge this book by his cover. 
Ken Cade is one of the most compassionate, protective people in the Dream Warriors, and that is that gentle giant drope that surrounds his character that I really grew to love about him. He is equally furious and gentle, and his fury is rightful. He is allowed to be this, to have the same duality as the white characters surrounding him do, because he is allowed to be a person. I will not praise what I assume may have been, you know, stereotyping or in a way tokenization, but I will praise some of the writing decisions that birthed Kincaid. Because if you watch that movie and don't like him, I don't know what the fuck to say to you. I don't know why you wouldn't like him. I don't trust you. Yeah, I don't get it. Why? He didn't do anything wrong. I don't know what to say to you. Kincaid is the kind of guy who'd give you the shirt off his back if you really needed it. The bloody knuckles, the foul mouth, they don't matter. He is a character type that gets me every single time. Because he may pass himself off one way, but his heart lies somewhere else, and it's where his heart lies that really appeals to me. I remember rewatching the movie, and as soon as Kincaid opened his mouth, Sim shut him down. And he wasn't even necessarily saying anything wrong to begin with, she just didn't want to hear him talk. Another thing I noticed about him was that he tries to cope with his emotion by he tries to cope with his emotions by pretending that he doesn't have them. And the way that Taryn calls him out on this makes me wonder if she used to act like that too. And maybe she's kind of moved beyond that and she's looking at him and she knows he can do better. I really like the friendship between these two in the movie. I really wish we got more scenes with them interacting. It's just, it's very, it's very infuriating how Kincaid is treated as a threat when, again, he never actually does anything wrong. These doctors try to paint him as this violent person and you want to, the most violent thing he does isn't even violent. He gets scared and he gets upset and he leaps out of his chair because he's upset. And I think we've all done that at least one point in our life. And Sims immediately presses the panic button and has him dragged out of there in front of all of his friends. And she goes so far as to say that when she sedates the children that night, she was going to sedate him first. She had no reason to say that. Like, Tone fuck policing. this lady. She's racist. She is racist. Yeah, no. It, it's it's absolutely... that. It's a very common problem. Black people are tone policed, especially in... Uh, medical fields and in psychiatric fields, if they are under any kind of observation and any kind of judgment, which in a white society, black people always are, they're going to attack them for the littlest expression that could be interpreted as unfavorable or in some way aggressive, regardless of whether it's actually aggressive or not, because uh, white women do that shit. You know what Sims is? Sims is the Karen that calls the cops on you for walking down her sidewalk. That's who Sims is. And I don't fucking like Sims. Not not one bit. And even Neil, a character we're meant to like, and a character I do really like, even he shows a degree of internalized racism towards Kincaid. He gets defensive too when Kincaid raises his voice. And again, Kincaid was upset. He was understandably upset, and all of the other kids were upset. And Neil still felt the need to call him out on it. He really had no reason to do that. There was that scene where the kids are all testing out their new powers, and for no real reason, Neil gets nervous when he notices Kincaid bending that chair. Kincaid isn't, again, he isn't doing anything wrong. He, he really never does. And he's just having fun, like all the other kids are, and Neil still feels the need to say, Oh, Kincaid, you're making me kind of nervous. Like, Kristen's doing backflips off the wall. The other kids are all doing weird shit. Like, Taryn's running around with knives. Like, you have no reason to single out Kincaid. He isn't doing anything differently than the other children. Yeah, he's he's not allowed to, like, be a kid. 
that bothers me a lot is that Kincaid was never a, like perceived as a boy. He's perceived as a grown man because he's a tall black boy. And that's it's his strength, his physicality. They view it as imposing and they view it as somehow inherently more threatening than the other kids, even though really Kincaid's power is both in his heart and in just raw, like physical strength. He doesn't have any really like special dream abilities or anything. He's not actually a threat. I would say he's less of a threat than like Terran and Christian are. And still they're going to sit there and be like, hmm, well, he's tall and he's he's a black he's a black boy, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend that he's that he's gonna hurt me. And it's like no, you fucking white bitch. He, <laughs> he's just a kid. He's doing the same shit that the other kids are doing. Just let him do that. Yeah, being adultified is a real problem that black children face and this movie is no exception of that. It's very it's very unfortunate that, you know, they didn't have, there's a word I'm looking for, sensitivity writers. It's mm. a real shame that there weren't any black sensitivity readers or writers for these films because I think that we desperately needed them. It's just and, a shame uh, that I don't think many black people, if any, were working on these films in general. I, I think we would have gotten very different uh, scripts and very different dialogue and some very different implications and the way that things were handled if we had had a more diverse cast of writers actively working on this film. Absolutely. I will say, I don't want to praise the writing too much because they do a lot wrong here. But I do appreciate that when we finally see Kincaid alone for the first time, it's when he was sent to the quiet room. And this is when we realize that he's just as scared as all of the other children. He's shaking up. He's singing to himself that he doesn't want to dream anymore. They want us to sympathize with him. That is why they took the time to show him alone in this room. They do want you to care about him. Never forget the scene where he called Freddy a burnt face pussy and a chicken. <laughs> that was hilarious. And I remember he was yelling that at him. And Freddy was just kind of sitting back and observing the dream words. And as soon as he heard that come out of Kincaid's mouth, that is when he reveals himself. Kincaid walked so Kia Watterson could run. <laughs> I love Kia, by the way. No, yeah, Kia's... When we get to Freddy versus Jason, we're going to have uh, equal parts to say about Kia. I know that Carling, I don't know if I cut it out or not, but Carling mentioned earlier in our conversation that media has developed since then and has improved in certain ways since then with the way that it handles its black characters. Uh, Kia in Freddy versus Jason has a lot of the same issues in terms of writing and what the writer's did with her as Kincaid does here you know the the perception that they are somehow more that they're somehow more threatening or more aggressive or more deserving of criticism and the fact that other characters are overly critical of them in their narrative it's pretty fucking shitty that didn't change you know like 20 years passed and it didn't change so we're still we haven't improved that much. We have not taken no. that many strides forward. I would say it's more of a one and a half steps forward and then two steps back kind of thing. And sometimes somebody takes a stride, like a whole leap, and then they just go right back a couple steps. It sucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we have anything else to say about Kincaid, or do you want to talk about Will? I have significantly less to say about Will, but I would like to talk about Will. Um, He's a sweet boy. I have already said it. I will say it again. I have a respect for and a critique of how this movie handled its disabled characters. My understanding, and I guess the way that I keep myself sort of biting the bullet when it comes to discussing Will, is that it was Will's desire to be able to walk again. It was him. He dreamed it. 
And it was his own actions initially that stripped him of his ability to walk, which, if I remember correctly, was a prior suicide attempt. He dreams of being able to take it all back as a way of healing and empowering himself, and I assume moving on from that suicide attempt. While I didn't enjoy this as a writing decision, I cannot and do not blame him as a fictional person for wanting to be abled. Some disabled people do. It is a very personal thing for most people, and it's nobody else's business except their own. I like Will because Will represents all of the nutso gutso campiness of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise without- I am the wizard master. <laughs> he is the wizard master. He is. With... He's fucking awesome. He is allowed to be this without sacrificing his entire character to said campiness. He never stops being endearing. Will is like that kid brother that your friend has who you always agree to play video games with to be nice, and, or at least that's why you agreed at first, and then every single time you sit down to play Call of Duty with this kid, he kicks your fucking ass. He's awesome. Needing a mobility aid does not make Will any less awesome. I know that the wheelchair is meant to be something that haunts him in his deepest and most intimate nightmares, but really the fact that he's disabled is something you almost forget in how well the rest of him is written, and me personally... I like that. I think a good character like Will should be written as a human being first, with thoughts and actions and feelings, and that everything else about them should come second. That is not to say that having the variety of representation that Dream Warriors does is a bad thing, because it is a good thing. Nor am I saying that giving a character a non-standard trait, aka a trait that makes them a marginalized person, is an additive or an afterthought, because preferably it won't be. These should be heralded as important, but they shouldn't be the only thing that the character is there to be, because that is tokenization, and like I've said before, tokenization gets on its knees and sucks me the fuck off. Oh, absolutely. And that, and you said it very eloquently, he isn't there to be the token kid in the wheelchair. He is first and foremost a caring friend, enthusiastic about his interests, and just a very sweet person. Like Taryn, it really sucked to see him die, but I am glad he went down fighting, because that's what Taryn did as well. And the thing is, Will and Taryn were not incompetent. They were never portrayed as incompetent. Freddy is just crazy strong, and he doesn't play fair. It shows, again, that Freddy's a fucking asshole. It also shows that Freddy can't fucking win unless he cheats. If he is outside of the dream world, he's really fucking pathetic. He sucks. The only thing that he has on his side are powers that were given to him, and we've talked about this in the, from the first episode of our podcast. They gave power to a man who they knew would use it, the dream demons, I mean, who they knew would use it to hurt people who were vulnerable in the way that he used to be. Not to seek any kind of justified vengeance, but to be a fucking dick about it. And that's all he has him for, and that's all he uses him for, is to be a fucking dick about it. You know, speaking of cocks, I think we should talk <laughs> a little bit about Don's fall from grace. Again, like you said, Don was never a great person by default, because he is a cock, for one thing. And while I will give him, like, a tiny little crumb of credit in the first movie for at least being a better parent than Marge's, though that's a really low bar, he's just, oh my god, he's gotten so much worse since then. This is not a jab about John Saxton. I, Saxon, I'm sorry, love him as an actor, think he gave great performances in this film, but Don as a character is a dick. I live with a bunch of fucking animals. What the fuck? And you live with actual animals, you and they walk, better behave than you this. You walk really loud, too. Anyway, go on. 
I would like to talk about how Don expresses a desire to be part of Nancy's life, and yet he doesn't. He pretends he doesn't understand why he's shutting her. Why she's shutting him up in the first place, which feels a little again. Don't like using really strong words. At best, that is manipulative, and at worst, he is gaslighting her. He essentially calls her crazy for believing that Freddy is back, despite the fact he himself knows and admits he knows later that this is the truth. I don't remember him showing any criticism of Marge in the first one, but we can assume he doesn't like her very much because of the divorce. I believe the original script delved into that a little bit more. But for someone who claims to dislike his ex, he's become just as bad as her right down to the drinking. And if it weren't for Neil's intervention, you, you gotta wonder if he would have helped at all. He, you know, I'm, I'm also thinking about how jumpy he gets around Freddy's remains, and it really makes me wonder, like, does he feel any remorse for the role he played in Freddy's death? Did he feel a sense of impending doom? It was very interesting. They set it up, like, you think he's about to redeem himself, like, he looks at this, the Freddy skeleton that's pulled itself out of the, I think it pulled itself out of the car trunk. He looks at it. And he's prepared to fight this thing. And you think that he's finally going to redeem himself because he's just been so detestable the entire movie. Doesn't happen. He gets impaled immediately. He just fucking dies. There's no redemption there for him. <laughs> I do not enjoy Don Oinkers Thompson. However, I do have to say, you know they slept together. Freddie and Don. You know they fucking slept oh, together. Oh, oh yeah. The- what the fuck was going on there? Like, there there are so many weird little moments where he's like, Oh my god, it's your skeleton. Oh my god, yeah, I know he's gonna, I know he's gonna come to life. I feel his essence. I'm like, I bet you fucking do. I bet you He was like, do. he tried to run away, like, twice. Oh no, don't look at me while I run away. Oh, you love to, <laughs> you hate to watch me leave, but you love to see me go. Um, I could probably, you know, stand to talk about Philip and Jennifer in a little more detail, but I won't, because, again, if there were characters in this movie that were mostly just there to die, it was those two. But- we got some great fucking lines out of it. Some very iconic lines. From both them and Freddy. Uh, I think we should talk- we've talked a lot about the major characters in this film, and I'd really like to talk about just general commentary on the film. I took a lot of notes while I was you, watching. You can talk about general commentary on this film, because I need prompts to talk about things, because I don't have a thought in my head unless I'm told to. You need to get yourself more credit. No. However- <laughs> We're gonna start arguing, so I'm not even gonna push that. I'm so I'm gonna I'm going to read the notes that I took while I was watching the movie. Still, a fan, it holds up fantastically. By the way, I really believe this is one of the best horror movies that came out in the '80s. Just a pheno- phenomenal film in every way. I uh, who the not fuck? Gonna, who the fuck is stomping up and down your stairs? That would be my sister. You live in, like, a haunted house. It's I know that these are real living people. I'm actually going to keep some of this in because I feel like we should explain to people why there's so much white noise and weird shit going on in your end. Um, yeah. There is... I swear to God, your sister and your brother will be like, mm, I'm just I'm just standing here doing something. And then every <laughs> single time they do anything, like, they're fucking just ruining it. I know, and they, they know I'm recording. I tell them in advance, and they see my microphone, and they don't give a shit. It's like, damn, you can only lower your gain so much before it doesn't pick up your fucking voice anymore. Anyway, <laughs> I've talked a lot about my feelings on Elaine Parker. I'm not going to get super into them right now, but I will talk about how she does show some awareness that Kristen is going through some stuff, but it's like, it's not even that she's unaware and just doesn't understand. She knows 
and she just can't be bothered to help her. She's more interested in throwing herself at men and flaunting her wealth. It's easier for her to call Kristen a spoiled brat than to sit down and make any real attempts at sympathizing with her own child. She can suck me. You know she was one of the kids who bullied Freddy when he was little. I mean, to be fair, and to be fair, I'm more interested in throwing myself at men and flaunting my minimal wealth than I am in taking care of a child. But I don't have a child, so, like, it's a little different. <laughs> yeah, and, like, you have- you- I mean, your pets are your babies and you take care of them. Uh, another thing I like about this film is its pacing. We're introduced to all of our major characters within the first- within the first 10 or 15 minutes. It also establishes their personalities and which character dynamics will be the most significant. Nothing feels dragged out too much and nothing feels rushed. It is great. That's something I didn't really notice until I started taking screenwriting classes and then going back to the movie, I was like, oh, that, that's good. I'd like to I'd like to learn from that when I write my own stuff. Nightmare on Elm Street's one through three had really great pacing and then Nightmare on Elm Street four just decided it was going to have 30 minute intervals of people sitting in a classroom and like sitting in their bedroom and like sitting on the sidewalk and like sitting in a diner and then sometimes Freddy would be there. Oh, we are gonna we're gonna rip into that movie. I hate that fucking movie. Go on. Oh my god, <laughs> horrible. But we're not talking about that today. I am gonna talk about a little bit about Philip and Jennifer, and I want to discuss how even though they're only on screen for a limited time, they are still memorable even if you don't get as invested in them as the others. We do get to know what their hobbies are like and what their aspirations are like, so that makes them feel a lot more three dimensional. You can have characters who are there to die and still like them. They don't have to be insufferable. And I actually feel Philip's death was pr is pretty shocking for a first-time viewer because he actually- I, I would say he has the most dialogue out of the Dream Warriors at first. He's very charismatic. They treat him like he's going to be a major player. So when they kill him off first, it's like, oh my god, this movie's not fucking around. That, that just happened immediately, huh? Yeah, and it really makes you realize, like, oh my god, anybody can die. And, you know, I could go on this whole tangent about how there are some horror films that take the anyone can die thing too far. I think you and I are thinking of one movie in particular, Grundle. Uh, some things should be sacred. However, I will say, the special effects in this movie hold up gorgeously. The snake is terrifying. I would say it's as scary as the snake from Beetlejuice, which I'm sure you have some thoughts on. <laughs> um, I um, I think uh, I think Snake Freddy's really hot. Uh. <laughs> but we're gonna we're gonna ignore that. It's not a vor thing. We're gonna ignore that. And I'm he not, just likes monsters. Yeah, I'm not gonna talk too much about that. You should see some of this shit on my on my. Uh... <laughs> Actually, no, you shouldn't see it. Uh, Carly, we'll go back to you. <laughs> anyway, oh my god, can we talk about the fucking? puppet scene in this movie that is one oh it's one of the most un, oh, it's one of the most uncomfortable deaths i've ever seen in any slasher movie in any horror movie i have seen this movie in my life i'd say i've seen it maybe like four or five times uh and every time i see this scene i'm like i'm trying not to gag i'm like recoiling it's the fucking sound design it is gnarly you can hear his veins blowing in the wind you can hear the blood just 
flowing. Mm. It's like, oh! Yummy, yummy, yummy. People talk a lot about how the vagina bone saw scene in Terrifier was fucked up and just unreal to watch. But personally, for me, I think ripping somebody's major arteries out of every limb and using them as marionette strings to puppet them to their own apparent suicide by jumping is way fucking worse. It was grosser. It looked a lot more real, probably because it wasn't trying to. Because when movies try too hard with the gore, it just makes things campy. Um, But yeah, I, I think a lot of the reason that scene was so uncomfortable and to me it was more uncomfortable than the infamous bone saw scene in Terrifier is because it wasn't actually trying to be realistic gore. It was like, hmm, you want to think of the most twisted, fucked up shit you could possibly do to somebody? We're going to do that right here on screen. It's like, okay, well, that's the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Thank you. It's like, what? What does what goes on in Freddy's head? How does he come up with this shit? Does he just come up with it on the spot? Or does he sit down and make lists of just terrible things he wants to do with people? Freddy is fucked up. <laughs> I hate this man. I do. You love him. I do love this man. <laughs> I don't love the stampede of elephants that is currently existing in your house. On the topic of Snake Freddy being hot, I also really like the you. I'm like, okay, oh. shit, dog. You can calm the fuck down. That gives me chills every time. This movie is so good at showing us things. They don't tell us. They show us. We only have a couple interactions between Freddy and Nancy in this film, which is a shock because their, you know, their relationship is pretty infamous. But with that one line and the way Robert England delivers it, you could just, you can hear the hate in his voice. I still get chills when I see that scene. It's fucking incredible. Since we're talking, just briefly interjecting about Freddy and Nancy, if you at all think that there's a degree of romance between Freddy and Nancy, I don't want you here. Moving on. We could do a whole episode on weird shit we've seen the Nightmare on Elm Street fandom do, but that can be another that can be another episode if we even have the stomach to talk about it. Some of that shit is real bad. It's real bad. Ugh. Back to the characters in this film. I think that the fact that we are shown how they care about each other and how they try to protect each other, it really helps raise the stakes. It creates a real sense of suspense and a real sense of tragedy when somebody dies because where a lot of horror films go wrong and where we both feel Nightmare on Elm Street 4 goes wrong, if your characters don't care about each other, why should we care about them? It feels so hollow. I see you wrote a note about Sims and I have this impression just initially that you're going to skip over your thoughts about redeeming Sims because as we've spoken prior, Sims is irredeemable. Yeah, at first, you know, at first I thought, well, you know, she's a bitch, but she is trying. But after seeing the way she treats Kincaid in particular and just how she treats these children in general, no, I think she's an asshole. Um, Even if she does want to help them, she's prideful. And not in, not in a funny villain way, like Freddy. Like, this is the kind of woman you meet in real life who just makes your life hell. And I understand that Freddy is mostly going after kids because Freddy Freddy's a cowardly little prick. But it would have been nice if at least if someone... Else, I know we had Kristen call her a bitch, but she should have gotten more karma than that, I think. It's a little bit frustrating. I don't feel right saying that you should hit a woman. But I think that Sims would be a very different person if somebody had at any point in her life looked her in the eyes and said that if she didn't shut the fuck up, they were going to slap her across the face. As a woman, or as someone who is woman-aligned, I can confirm there are some women. You, 
I'm not saying you should hit women in general. I'm saying <laughs> some of them there, I would hit. There are some people who just need a fucking slap, and that's just how it is. Um, yeah. Please don't take that out of context. We both love women in different ways. Somebody's gonna cut our voices and we're gonna get a Tumblr call out where somebody cuts our voices really badly and says that we told our audience to hit women. <laughs> oh Every God. time you see a woman, you slap them. Um, uh, yeah, we should take a page out of Freddy's book. That, no! Don't say that! Anyway, we're talking about protagonists and antagonists and people who make your life hell and people who make your life better. This is tying back to the characters again. Um, the protagonists of this movie are written so well, you don't even, you don't even remember you're waiting for Freddy, because you are so invested in watching them, it's like Freddy shows up and you're like, it's like, oh yeah, you're here too. <laughs> and that's a big problem with a lot of slasher films, uh, like, Friday the 13th is fucking notorious for this. It's not good to just sit around and wait for a slasher, that makes these movies very, movies like this very insufferable to sit through, and Dream Warriors didn't do that. It's a delight when Freddy shows up, but you're not necessarily dying every time he's off camera. Unlike Nightmare 4. Oh, God. Oh, Again. Nightmare 4. Uh, you know, we actually wrote some notes on Nightmare 4, so you can see a little bit of my resentment for this film when I talk about 3 and how 3 is just better in every way. <laughs> you guys are... Uh, probably about Monday or Tuesday when we release episode four of this podcast, you guys are going to get more than a little hint of how much we hate Nightmare 4. We've tried to like this film. We've tried twice. It gets worse every time you watch it. Uh, we've Ugh. tried three times, if you count the time we all got in the Discord server and almost sort of watched it, but not really. We were We were all just suffering together the entire time. And, you know, something that 3 did right that 4 completely failed to do... They actually let the characters grieve in this movie when somebody died. There were spaces between the deaths. It wasn't just a bloodbath. It was it was very sad when someone died. And the characters cared about each other and it, and you need things like that in these movies or they don't work. Yeah, I I am a I'm not a fan of 4 mostly because I feel like it falls right back into the two very distinct slasher tropes that I really don't like. One is that the only thing driving the plot of four, unlike three, is waiting for the next person to die, which is not a good relationship to have with the protagonists of any movie, whether it's a horror film or not. And two, it over-sexualizes its females a little too much for me. Like, I- it, of course it gets worse later on in the franchise, but- Four was kind of the start of us viewing these teenagers not really as teenagers anymore, and that fucking sucks me off. You know, I will have to- I do have to say, I do appreciate that n none of- oh, thank god. The fact that this is- the fact that this is considered noteworthy is just sad and gross. N none of the child characters were sexualized in this movie at all. Nancy, even though she's an adult, they never- they, they never sexualize her either. Like, she's a very beautiful woman- I want, I want to say no one is reduced to being sexy. We do have that scene with Joey's nurse, but it at least plays a role in the story. Like, you know, you could tell they kind of wanted to throw boobs in there. <laughs> but at least something, at least we got something out of it that was related to the story. And if you think that scene was uncomfortable in the finished product, it was going to be a lot worse at but, first. But Carling, Teddy Krueger. <laughs> They were going yeah. to have the actress put on the Freddy makeup, I believe, and um, it wasn't 
it wasn't going to be favorable. I don't appreciate anything that I saw in those Google images. However, I'm obligated legally to say that to the public because I actually do appreciate them. I just don't want to be sued for emotional damages. Uh, do you want to talk about how fucking awesome the expansion of the Dream World was in this one? I like, will just say pretty briefly about that, that Dream Warriors' world building walked so that new nightmares could run. I think Freddy's Dead did a pretty good job of expanding on the Dream World's influence, uh, especially globally outside of Springwood 2, but Nightmare 3 was the kickoff for that. Mm-hmm. Like, this was the first film that went beyond just the boiler room. We didn't see a lot of the dream world in Nightmare 2 because it mostly focused on the real world. And in, in, in it makes sense from a narrative standpoint because Freddy's kind of, he's kind of new to this sort of thing in the first movie. So, and they acknowledge it in 3, Nancy comments, oh my god, like he's stronger than before. So it makes sense that the dream world is bigger now. It isn't just a budget thing. It does make sense in the story, which I love. Are you cracking your knuckles? I am, sorry. Even if it had (laughs) just been a budget thing, I get really itchy and stiff joints, but even if it just had been a budget thing, they made it work. And I think that's the more important thing that also kind of has Terrifier vibes, which I know drew some inspiration from... Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, especially from Dream Warriors, but... Oh, two is actually, uh, David Howard Thornton said that they took inspiration for Dream Warriors, and if we're talking a lot about Terrifier, it's because we are on the edge of our seats waiting for the sequel. It looks amazing. Chewing my cuticles off waiting for Terrifier, too. Oh my god. There is a difference between having to, like, force something in at the last minute because your script sucks or your budget's bad or whatever, and actually making that work for you. Like, making the forced change in pacing or setting and costuming or whatever, making that look good and making that somehow register as intentional to the audience. You can do that. And, uh, yet again, Nightmare 4 did not do that, but that is for mm-hmm. next episode. I fucking... Can you guys tell? Can you guys tell that we don't fucking like Nightmare on Elm Street 4? We're not even gonna add Nightmare on Elm Street 4, like, into the itinerary for something we're analyzing. The most we're analyzing is why Nightmare on Elm Street 4 is bad, and then the next episode is going to be mostly about Nightmare on Elm Street 5, which is also bad, but less. Yeah, the 5 at least had- we- there are at least themes we can discuss about 5. I can't say- I can't say anything about 4. I've tried. I've tried. It's- it's not- it's just- it's not gonna work. Uh, these are just little side notes, honestly. Uh, the scene where Kristen is joined by her friends in the quiet room is very sweet. Like, I I really just like all these nice little moments in this movie. The found family theme is really why it works so well. I think it's one of the most iconic aspects of the film. I complained that Elaine didn't die, which I already mentioned, so no need to get into that again. Uh, the junkyard scene still looks awesome in the finished product. But I do wish they were able to play Sympathy for the Devil like the script originally called for, because that is such a Freddy song, and that would have been such a cool scene. Uh, you mentioned that it reminded you of Army of Darkness, which I have to agree with. That's another very good film. We might be able to talk about that eventually. And the ending of this film, I appreciate that it manages to be very sudden and very quiet at the same time. It just kind of... It just You're just kind of left sitting there just absorbing everything that you spent the last hour and a half watching. Uh, it is unfortunate that they never explain the light turning on in Kristen's paper mache house. I personally like to believe it was Nancy, but the fact that Freddy comes back in the next movie combined with how ominous that musical cue sounds is it, very, very vague. It can, I think it can be whoever you want, but it's framed as pretty creepy. 
And that was the last of my notes. Alright, well, if that's the last of your notes, then please ignore the sound of small Frenchy puppies barking. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe to have future installments delivered directly to your big throbbing brain. We <laughs> love you, and we'll see you for our Nightmare 4 and 5 combo episode very soon. Stay frosty.